invite you to open your Bibles where we just read to Genesis chapter 11. We're in the summer season and uh, school's out. It's high five and Ben down here. School's done. He's a million times happy that it's, it's done for the, for the year. And so let the vacations begin. Uh, why, why is it like for vacations, everyone leaves Northfield? Why, why, do, why do people not come to Ohio for vacation? I'm, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, it's time of refreshment, time of renewal. Uh, but there are some journeys that change your life. Uh, some journeys change your life um, because of their timing uh, in, in the sequence of, of your life. I remember driving to college to drop off our our firstborn, and uh, all that was a part of that. And uh, we're going to head off in August to drop off our our lastborn. And uh, those are those are those are those change things. Those change things. Uh, perhaps you remember when you left home. You know, you you, you didn't just like pack a suitcase. You left. That uh, was life changing. Uh, There are journeys uh, sometimes in our experience that are life-changing because they are firsts. I remember the the first time that I left this country for a foreign country. No, Canada does not count, all right, for a real real foreign country. Uh, And uh, got on an airplane boarded for South Africa. Uh, Then there was was a, a time just a few years ago uh, that uh, made the journey of a wilderness hiking trip with my two sons and my father-in-law. And that was a brand new experience and just all that, uh, all that was a part of that trip. Sometimes uh, there are journeys we make because they are about needing a change. Um, we need a fresh start. And so we'll set out on a journey. Sort of like the journey that is recorded for us back in the book of Genesis in chapters actually 11 through 25. And what starts off in this journey as really a tribal migration in uh, the ancient land of what is now Iraq, it becomes a pilgrimage that would change history. So we begin a new series this morning that's going to take us on that journey. The end of chapter 11, which was just read for us, introduces the man whose life's journey we're going to retrace. It all starts in the the thriving city of Ur of the Chaldeans. Again, a city that was located in what is now southern Iraq. And that journey heads uh, northwest to, to the city of Haran, And then comes southwest into the land today known as Israel. Then it was known as Canaan. It's with a man who is named Abram. He's going to be renamed later in the story to Abraham. And he is married to Sarai who is going to be renamed later to Sarah. Their journey opens with the heartache of infertility. We're told in the text that was read that Sarai was barren. And in case you don't know what that means, and also to drive home the point, she had no child. 
It sort of stands out because we've been in a bunch of chapters where, where there's progeny, where there's, where there's the fathering of children and this generation and the next generation and, and this one begot this one and you come to the story, uh, this story that begins of Abram and he has his wife and they have no child. There's no begetting of a child in this. A couple not able to contribute to flourishing humanity by being fruitful and multiplying. There's no child, there's no descendant, there's no seed. All of that begs for explanation. So if we go back to the beginning of chapter 11, that chapter begins with, with a story that you may be familiar with, the story of the Tower of Babel. And here is where God's judgment separates people. And begins to form nations by separating their languages. And out of that comes all these nations. There was a table of them listed for us in the previous chapter, chapter 10. But for the sake and mercy upon our scripture readers, we did not read chapter 10. As you go through all of those names. It's out of that judgment. And it's out of that confusion that Abraham's journey emerges. But to get there... We need to go back even further so we can put Abram's journey in context. The Bible begins with four major events that precede the life and the journey of Abraham. The first of those we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, and it's the the event of creation. And there through Genesis 1 and Genesis And Genesis 2, we read over and over again that it was by God's word that all was created. He speaks, and you'll read again, he said, and then he said, and then he said, and it was so. God creates as he speaks. And then we come in that creation account to to a unique part of his creation. And that is where he creates man. He creates the human race. It says there that it was in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. And the language there is different because as you go through that account, God is speaking and it's happening just systematically, almost rhythmically. In Genesis 1, he speaks, it happens. He speaks, it happens. And all of a sudden, things just sort of stop. The the pace of the text stops. The the, the rhythm of the text stops because God's going to do something different. He is going to create something unique, and that is man, that is humanity. And so rather than speaking into existence, God reaches down from something he already made, dirt. And he takes dirt, and from that dirt he does the work of a sculptor. And he forms, and he fashions, and he designs man, he designs the male, And then, as the story goes on, from from a piece of the man, from the piece of the male, he, he took some flesh, and then he formed and he fashioned like a sculptor the female. Male and female, he made them as he created man in the image of God. It is that act of God that establishes human worth. It's that act of God that declares human value. And so from the beginning of the story, we come to realize that that, that worth or value is not something that any of us has to achieve for ourselves because we can't. 
It's not something that other people give to you because God has already bestowed it by virtue of you being made in his image. And this is also where we get our identity. We don't create our identity. We don't choose our identity. We accept it as from God because he designed male and female to fulfill the task that he had for them. And so in that creation event, we read about a mandate that God gave to the man and the woman. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and govern it. Have children and have children who will have children who will have children who will have children and fill the earth, which is going to be necessary because of the other part of the mandate. And that was to have dominion over or to manage to rule over this world. Man was to reign over the world as God's vice mediators, if you will. To manage it under God for human flourishing. And so in that, in that mandate, God gave them something to do. He gave, them, he gave them something to accomplish. He gave them something, uh, he gave them a purpose. And then to accomplish all this, the, the creation narrative and in Genesis chapter 2, uh, there at the very end, closes, it closes with, with these words. As God brought the man and woman together, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And so in this creation, there was the creation for relationship. After creating, after creating the man and the woman, he says it's not good for the man to be alone. He takes that piece, he creates a female, he brings them together, he puts them back together through the institution of marriage. He says, now here's your task. Created for his glory. Created for our good. Given worth. Given significance. Given belonging. The question is, will we believe that? Will we believe that? So the story moves on to the second event in Genesis 3. We call it the fall. There was a test that God put before uh, before Adam and Eve because there was a boundary to be established. God is God. Man is man. And let's not mix the two up. God is God and he's still sovereign. He's He's still the one who is in charge. He is still the authority. He is still the one who is perfect. And so God says to the man and the woman, enjoy everything I've prepared for you in this garden. Except one thing. You're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, It is not your prerogative to make the choice of what's good, what's evil, what's right, what's wrong. God reserves that right. Man lives under God, not over God, not equal with God, under God. And the question is then, Will they trust him? Will they trust him and obey him? Well, Satan comes along in that story with a a little temptation. He said, hey, you know what, Adam and Eve? Uh, There's another way. There is another way to figure all this out. There's another way to make your way through through life here on this earth. Not just God's way. Um, Yeah, okay, he spoke and he has some things to say. But but maybe maybe there's alternatives. Maybe there's some options for you to choose from. And in the story, man in his rebellion says, okay, I think I'll do this the way I want to do it. I think I'll 
discover my own worth. I think I'll create my own identity. I think I'll achieve my own significance. I'm going to forge my own pathway to belonging. I'll do it for myself and I'll do it my way. And that's been the human story ever since, hasn't it? That's the human story. That there's another way to put all these these, these things together other than believing God. That there's a way to achieve all these other things apart from God. Well, it was a lie, and as a result came curse, came shame, came separation of human relationships, separation from God. They were driven away from the tree of life where they derived the life that God made for them to have. But encouragingly, God, in the midst of that that dark rebellion, utter rebellion against him, God speaks a promise in Genesis 3.15. And and it says, and it sounds like this, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, going to crush you, and you'll bruise his heel. In the midst of all of that, God says, I'll fix this. I'll fix this. Will we trust him? Will we trust him? Well, as the story continues, even after the fall, the consequences are, are swift and things devolve rapidly. You move into chapter 4 and we have Cain, the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Cain, who, who shows himself to be a man who trusts himself. And if you will, gives, uh, gives a birth, if you will, to a godless generation. Trusts himself. Well, Cain murders his brother Abel, who is the one who trusted the Lord, who believed God. And then we find in that chapter that marriage is defiled by the polygamy of Lamech which also set, uh, signals deviation in the sexual realm. By the time we get to chapter 5, uh, we are hearing over and over again, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. If you will, the results of the, of the fall have, have taken root. By the time you get to Genesis 6 and verse 5, this is how bad things are. The Lord, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A few verses later, in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, it says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Didn't take long. And then as you continue in chapter 6, you read of God's reaction to that, God's grief. Genesis 6, verse 6, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry I've made them. You see, left to himself, left to ourselves, this is the trajectory of the human race. Humans do not evolve upward. They don't evolve upward. We devolve into greater spiritual darkness and lostness. The history of mankind is that the human population does not play well together. You call it nationalism. Call it tribalism. 
It's ultimately individualism because it's in our DNA to pursue our own worth, to pursue pursue our own significance, and to try to find some sense of belonging apart from God. Well, then that brings us to the third event, which is the flood. And in chapter 6, verse 13, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I would paraphrase that this way. I'm going to mop up this mess with a flood and start over. But he doesn't start, God doesn't start from scratch. He doesn't start from dirt this time. Rather, we found in the previous chapter that he began a new, a new line, a new line of the faithful through, uh, through the child that was born to Adam and Eve to replace Abel who was killed. They, they gave birth to Seth, from whom descended a man named Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, a man of faith who trusted in the Lord. And when the Lord told uh, him to build an ark, he did it even though he had never built one before, never seen one before. When God spoke of a coming flood, Noah believed, even though he'd never seen rain. When God told him to put his family uh, and the assorted creatures on the ark, he did exactly what God told him to do. See, Noah understood something the rest of humanity apparently didn't. And that was the need to believe God and to act according to that belief. So, the human race is going to be preserved through a man who trusted the Lord. Here's to hoping for a better outcome. The flood happens, but when Noah and his family come off the ark into the old world, kind of made new by the floodwaters, if you will, a new beginning, we hear a very familiar mandate, a blessing and a mandate that we heard in the beginning chapters of Genesis. In chapter 9, verse 1, God says to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is, have children. Have children. See, children are the universal evidence of the Lord's creation blessing. That's why children are not to be belittled. It's why they are not to be exploited. It's why they are not to be aborted or neglected as as an inconvenience, but celebrated by responsible parenting and protected by society. They are the future. They represent human flourishing. So humanity has a second chance, if you will. Humanity blew it the first time, but there's another chance to remake the future through children. What's the first story? Noah plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and shamefully gets naked in his tent. Wow. Where have we heard about nakedness and shame before? Then to add insult to injury, his son Ham behaves shamefully toward his father. The result we read in Genesis 9.25, Cursed be Canaan, A servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And the Noah and the flood story ends with these words. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. You see, the flood cleaned up the environment. Got rid of all the sinners. 
and all the corruption of society. Certainly, certainly we can flourish now because we got rid of all those bad things, all those bad people were doing, and we got all those bad people off the face of the earth. Certainly, certainly the world is going to be saved now. And so Noah and his family, they come out of the ark into a new world, but there was something the flood did not remedy because it's something that the waters of the flood uh, could not clean up. And that was the sinful heart. And that sinful heart was in everyone who came off that ark and was passed on to their kids. You see, the, the judgment of sinners won't ultimately fix the problem in this world. You can, you can round up every wretched sinner you think is out there, lock them up behind bars, and you'll think you'll have made this world a better place, and you'll find out soon that you haven't. That you haven't. The problem's not fixed, which continues to play out then in the fourth event we read of in Genesis 11, and that was the Tower of, of Babel. Noah's descendants, we read in those chapters, rather than scattering in obedience to the, the divine mandate, they, they trust in themselves. And, and they collect and they unite. And, and, and you sort of read the, the, the key thought there in chapter 9 and, and verse, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, chapter 11 and verse 4, where they, they say this, uh, uh, come, let's build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Being created in the image of God does not mean making a name for ourselves. They weren't created for that purpose. The Tower of Babel, it's a story of self-achievement. We're going to provide for ourselves. We We don't want to be dispersed. We don't want to be scattered. And so their actions are rooted in self-determination and self-trust. And it's flavored with a little bit of nationalism. Let's, let's collect together and us right here. I thought that, they thought that was their salvation. It was not an act of trusting God, but of trusting themselves. The irony in all that is here, they're saying in verse 4, come, let us build a city, the tower, it's going to go to the heavens. And what happens in chapter 5? The Lord comes down. (laughs) So here they've built this this massive architectural wonder to reach to the heavens. And you know what? God still has to come down to look at this puny thing that they're building. Comes down. It's what he did in Eden, by the way, back in chapter 3. God was there walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? Hey, Adam, uh, what's happened here? What's happened here? He came down there and came with judgment, but he made a promise. And here God comes down again and he punishes. He judges, but it prepares for the next movement in his plan of redemption. See, fallen humanity united cannot replace God and will not reach God. United humanity will only destroy itself. Go back to Genesis 6. 
Genesis 6 reminds us that if God doesn't do something, if God doesn't intervene, we're basically going to leave, uh, live Genesis 4, 5, and 6 over and over and over and over and over again until God decides, I guess, I guess we're done with this. Destroy ourselves. So for their own good, God divides and scatters them. So if you've been keeping score as we're working through those events, we're keeping score, I would say the score now stands here. Satan two, God zero. We're in the same place we were after the fall. Kind of hopeless. I mean, is this the best that mankind can do? (laughs) It might cause you to ask, does God know what he's doing? Or is he figuring out this thing on the fly? Has God created a problem bigger than he can solve? Obviously, the flood and, and, and that new beginning didn't fix the human problem. Let me just say this, that God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, so much does he know exactly what he's doing, God doesn't have plan A with a backup plan B. He's not tweaking his plan. He's not adjusting his plan along the way. God has a plan. And it's a plan that precedes Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. His plan precedes that. His plan precedes the promise that he made in Genesis 3-15. To send seed to be the deliverer. In fact, you can go back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and you read these words. He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. God was at work before the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, talks about the, the lamb who was slain when? Well, um, wasn't it like on Good Friday uh, around, uh, what, AD 33 or so? Yes, but the lamb was actually slain from the foundation of the world. And then we read these words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I'm God. There is no other. I'm God. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel will stand and I will do all my pleasure. God doesn't have like a backup plan. God's not trying to figure this thing out as he goes along. Bottom line is, it's going to take more than a flood of watery judgment to clean up this world's mess. It's going to require more than a really good human. I mean, Adam was a pretty good human. Noah was a, was a pretty good human. And so in God's great plan, he intervenes again. And he separates and disperses the nations in order to begin his work of creating a particular nation through which the world's salvation will come. God's at work. God's at work. And through all the mess of Genesis 1 through 11, and and if you will, all the hopelessness that comes out of Genesis 1 through 11, we are being given a picture that shows how amazing the grace and the mercy of God is. How in the world would we know grace apart from the existence of sin? How in the world would we know mercy apart from being people who deserve none? Those chapters set up the amazing story that's going to launch 
through this man named Abraham. And thus we are introduced to him at the end of chapter 11. Chapter 11 traces the line of Shem, who was one of Noah's sons. About 300 years or so after the flood, Abraham appears on the scene. And he's, he's living in a huge pagan city. And he comes from a family of idol worshipers. He has no children. His wife can't conceive. Remember, children are vital to human flourishing. Additionally, we've had the, we've had the promise of this seed that will, give, that will be God's promised deliverer for the fall. Abraham is hardly in the running to make a significant contribution to the world. I mean, what's this childless pagan going to do to change the world? Well, for reasons not told to us in chapter 11, in verse 31, Abraham's father, Terah, leads his household out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he heads for the land of Canaan, which was to the west. We will soon learn that God was actually the initiator of this migration. But rather than going due west, Terah actually heads north up to Haran, where he decided, we're told in the text, to settle his family. You might think, well, that, what's, the problem? what's the problem with that? Well, the, the problem is because we've had this word, this idea of dwelling already in this chapter. It's actually back at the beginning of chapter 11. And that was where, these, that was where th- this group, they decided to, to come to, they, they found this place in the plain of Shinar, and, and they said, here's where we're going to dwell, here's where we're going to settle. And, and so here we have Terah settling. You see, Terah settled into what, uh, into what was, while God was separating out his family for something new. And that's the challenge of faith. It's the challenge of faith. It takes us into new unfamiliar territory where we don't have it all figured out, where we don't have all the answers, where our experience isn't something that we can necessarily rely on. Faith is going to take us into the, into the realm sometimes of the unknown, the unexpected, the uncomfortable. It presses us to abandon self-assurance for trust in God. Because that's where he wants us to live. And so, as Terah's son, Abraham was kind of stuck. He's there in his father's household until there in that city of Haran, the last words of chapter 11 tell us that Terah died. There is a recurring theme running through these events that will continue into the journey of Abraham. And it is the need to believe God. God makes promises. And then he calls upon people to act upon those promises. Adam did it when he named his wife Eve. She had, if you will, found her life from him, but in, in, the, in the consequence of the fall and the promise that God made to Eve, Adam realized that his future life would come from her. And thus he called her living. Noah built the ark because he believed God would judge the world and that the ark would be the only safe place. And so God promises, and then he calls people to act upon those promises. You know what we call that? We call that faith. We call that faith. And listen, listen to how Paul describes the faith of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. He, that's he's referring to Abraham, he did not waver the promise of God through unbelief 
but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Did not waver about what? He did not waver about God's promise. Well, how might he waver through unbelief? Abraham's going to have some struggles along the way, but he's going to grow. In contrast, that he was strengthened. How? He was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. His faith gave glory to God. And how was that faith demonstrated? By being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to do. See, faith is how you meet God. Because the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 11 that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So, so faith says this, God is and God promises and what God promises is what I want. And when you want what God wants for you, you glorify God. And you are finding the very best thing you could ever find for yourself. Faith glorifies God. Thus, unbelief dishonors God. If you're going to make it in this world, it's going to be by faith. If you want to become the best version of you that's possible, you must believe God. You must trust him for your worth and for your significance and for your sense of belonging. That's what living by faith is. You believe that God keeps his promises, so you trust him and you act upon those promises. So what are we saying if we don't trust him? Are we saying that he's untrustworthy? Are we saying that he's wrong? Or maybe we're saying that he doesn't really know what's going on and doesn't really understand what's happening in my life. You know, that, that maybe we really do know better than he does. God, you don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know that child of mine. You don't, you don't really understand what I'm going through right now. You don't understand the pain, the pressure, the loneliness. Well, that puts us right back in Eden and it puts us right back at the Tower of Babel. Maybe this morning you need to join Abraham's journey of faith. It was an unexpected journey with tough turns and twists, but his life was changed because he believed God. And you know what? This man who started his journey childless became the father of all who believe. I joined that journey as a child when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. When I believed God's word that I was a sinner and my sin would send me to hell. But God had made a provision for me through his son Jesus Christ who died in my place, took my sin upon himself and was offering me righteousness and life everlasting if I would trust him. I believed that word. I am trusting that word. Have I, have I appeared before God yet? No. Am I in heaven yet? No. How do I know I'm getting in? Because I believe God's promise. It's really, it's really what I'm doing. I'm going through this life saying, God, I'm going to believe your promise. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. God makes promises. And he keeps the promises he makes. So the question for you is, will you believe him?
Father, we come to you because we believe that you are, that you have spoken, that you've promised. We believe your promises. God, the life of faith, it, 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 sound, it sounds so spiritual and it, it can sound so lofty and it can sound so ideal. Life of faith is what, is what you call us to. The life of believing you, of trusting you. And Lord, that's a battle because we want, our, our nature tells us to trust ourselves. Our nature tells us to, to just believe, what's in, to believe and do what's in our own hearts. But Lord, our, our hearts are deceived. It's not easy to walk by faith. It's challenging. It can appear dangerous. But Lord, that's the life you call us to because that's what you've, that's what you've always wanted of this human race that you created is that, is that we would trust you, that we would believe you, the one who made us, the one who, who can give us everything that we need. But Lord, so often we just insist on going, on our, going our own way, fixing our own problems, figuring it out on our own. We end up so lost. Oh God, you have, you've made the way back. You've made the way back through our Savior Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham. God in human flesh, through the lineage of Abraham, Christ came to rescue us, to save us from our sin, to give us hope, to give us life everlasting. Oh God, help us to live that life. Help us to walk that walk. It's the only way we'll make it through this life. So may we keep our eyes on you. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to close our time with a song. A song to, again, remind ourselves of who God is and what he says and the call to believe it. Perhaps you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. We'd count it a privilege to, to talk with you further. And maybe you can call out to the Lord right where, there where you are. But maybe it'd be helpful to have someone pray with you. We'll have people here in the front. And they'll do that. They'll go aside with you and privately open the word of God, answer questions you may have, and pray with you. Believer, I don't know, maybe your walk of faith is a bit shaky right now. It's time to remember and renew that this is the walk to which we're called. Let's, uh, let's respond to the Lord in this time as we close. And again, if we can be of help to you, we're here. Let's give thanks to the Lord in response. In Christ's name, amen.